Falling glass at a new Vancouver condo raises concerns. A landlord in Moncton gets caught being shitty. Employees at Nova Scotia Health caught snooping on patient records. Civil disobedience threat level raised to high in Calgary. And Lula takes on illegal mining in Brazil. Good morning. It's Thursday, February 9th. I'm Nora coming at you from London, Ontario. And here are today's headlines. A condo building in Vancouver has had two glass panels fall at least 30 meters in the last two months. The first incident happened in December. A glass panel fell from the 15th floor. The panel first shattered where it was, and the shards fell onto the balconies below. CBC Vancouver's Eva Ugensenge, Eva, I'm super sorry if that's not how you say your last name, is reporting that residents of a new condo in North Vancouver are concerned with this falling glass, obviously. Intergulf Development Group said that it may have shattered because of blunt force or defect. But this past Monday, a second panel fell from the ninth floor. Residents quoted in the piece say that they're concerned about how glass on their balcony looks as if it's leaning. CBC snapped two photos. One of someone holding a level pressed against the glass that shows that glass is very clearly not level. And one of a bolt that's holding the balcony glass onto the balcony that wasn't actually screwed on properly. As we'd say in French, it was to (laughs) crush. The residents complain about it to the property management company Rancho Management Services, but they have yet to send anyone to inspect it. Intergolf's warranty department insisted that the lean of the glass is what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to be, and that, quote, there's no possibility of glass panels falling out as a whole, unquote. I mean, in fairness, the first time it shattered in place and then fell, which, I mean, what's worse? I don't know. Ugin Senj talked to the executive director of the Condominium Home Owners Association of BC, Tony Juventu, who said that this is a growing problem. He attributed the problem to fasteners that hold the glass together. They loosen over time because of weather conditions. This is not an issue unique to this single condo in Vancouver. There's been issues of falling glass in other cities across North America, including Toronto and Montreal. Certainly, I'm wondering how do we hold developers to account, builders to account, and where does accountability lie when a condo has been purchased and then perhaps purchased and purchased and now there's renters living in it? Now we move to Moncton, where a landlord showed her whole ass in a welcome document that she would hand out to tenants. She's had to apologize. Anik Dadson gave new renters a 15-page rental welcome letter that had various rules for tenants. I mean, if that alone wasn't its own red flag, a 15-page welcome rule book from your landlord, okay. In this rental document, she told tenants to not help anyone on or around the property who looked like they were homeless. Jacques Poitras at CBC New Brunswick explained that Dadson wrote that, quote-unquote, all homeless people have food and a place to sleep provided to them by the government. Anyone who was on the street made the decision to be there, the document said. Poitra didn't explain how a welcome letter went so far off the rails that it ended up explaining Dadson's theory of social marginalization, but perhaps that's for a sociology study. 
Anyway, Dadson has since changed her mind about people who are unhoused, she says, and she takes full responsibility for the wording in the document. CBC quoted her saying, quote, this was an opinion that I had that I don't share anymore, so I changed it right away. I was happy to change it. She has taken full responsibility for this, absolving her husband and business partner, Art Dadson, of having anything to do with the wording of the document. Though the buildings are managed by both Ard and Enic by a company called A&A Real Estate Investors. Get it? A and A, Art and Enic. Very clever, folks. Also very good for the phone book, if uh, those still exist. Art Dadson is also a realtor in Moncton. Poitra reports that someone had called him greedy in response to the news of the letter. Was Anik taking the blame to help Art's career? Who knows? Local drama that folks in Moncton might be paying attention to? Maybe this is not necessary to care about? I'm not sure. In Art's own defense, Poitra quotes him saying, quote, friends tease him about being an angel because he always goes, quote, above and beyond to help as many people as I can in this life. My God, the guy's a saint. Greedy, though, might be an appropriate descriptor of the Dadsons. Under their About Us section at their corporate website, they explain that they can help you extract more money by investing in their rental properties. Here's how they describe their business. AAREI.ca, that's their company, ANA Rental Investments, something, something. AAREI.ca is your solution for better returns through tangible assets using real estate. If you are dissatisfied with your current investment returns, allow us to guide you to the results you've been aiming for. Our extensive real estate systems allow you peace of mind and the ability to focus on gaining more from your savings. I mean, I guess this understanding of housing explains the disdain for someone who is unhoused. They are worthless, and you got to protect those property values, right? Anyway, I'm glad that Enik has changed her mind about the unhoused. It's, it's great. That's great. Now over to Nova Scotia. Bill Dix from CTV Atlantic is reporting that eight employees of Nova Scotia Health breached the privacy of 270 people. Now, it's wild how these folks were caught. Listen to this. They were caught because Nova Scotia Help paid specific attention to the records of people related to the mass shooting in Portapique in 2020. In monitoring those specific records, they found that eight employees had been accessing their records. This triggered an investigation which, quote, revealed even more snooping going back for years. The investigation also found that the eight employees had engaged in more than 1,200 privacy breaches. They looked up friends, colleagues, and acquaintances. The investigation, which was based in events from 2020, took too long, and so there will be no criminal charges laid as they've passed the statute of limitations. While there is no news but the fate of these eight employees, Privacy Commissioner Tricia Ralph made 12 recommendations to Nova Scotia Health to improve their privacy management. Now, this isn't the first time that something like this has happened, and actually, it had just happened two years previously. In 2018, it was discovered that six staff people had accessed the personal health records of 355 Nova Scotians. Dix concludes the article with this, quote, at the time, then Commissioner Catherine Tilly said an investigation revealed a, quote, dangerous and insidious culture of entitlement to viewing records at the Nova Scotia Health Authority with unauthorized access in some cases taking place over a long period of time. I don't know, maybe the combination between a small town kind of feeling of a province, people having access to private records and lax oversight 
allows for this to happen. Um, not to mention if they were looking already to make sure people were not looking into the records of people connected to the port shooting, this suggests that there is a systemic issue that is present. Now, a quick bit of news from Calgary. The Calgary Emergency Management Agency, which is the, the, the agency that makes recommendations and oversees emergency management for the city, they presented its annual report on emergency preparedness to city council. This in and of itself, of course, is not interesting. But what we should be paying attention to is this. The agency highlighted three new risk factors that were moved from low risk to high risk. One, the pandemic. Two, a dam break on the Elbow River. And three, civil disobedience. An article from Adam McVicker at Global News quotes the agency's chief, Sue Henry, saying, because of what we're seeing in the environment nationally and internationally, we're going to see impacts and we're going to see more frequency of civil disobedience type events. It's also important that civil disobedience and protesting are not the same thing. They're not interchangeable. Unquote. Is that right? Oddly, her agency's definition of civil disobedience defines it as, quote, nonviolent protest. So she admits in some way that it actually is protesting. It's just a kind of protest that is easier to criminalize because it is against the law. I mean, this is all obvious stuff, but I'm going to lay it out anyway. Civil disobedience includes for them the intentional violation of law and refusal to obey the demands, orders, and commands of a government authority. Of course, that's interesting because sometimes the orders, commands, demands of government authority are actually not in line with the law. So, you know, they can just declare something to be illegal. That's happened in different parts of Quebec. And important to note that in this presentation, they mentioned that the Calgary police is the quote unquote lead on civil disobedience in the city. So civil disobedience, as much of a risk as the 32 days of extreme heat warnings and 12 days with extreme cold warnings in 2022? Really, folks? McVicker quotes a professor who references the Freedom Convoy as the example of civil disobedience that the city of Calgary needs to take seriously. But progressives need to be clear. They are actually thinking of us and radical tactics that might be taken for so many different important reasons. By declaring civil disobedience an emergency risk factor, it de facto criminalizes, demonizes civil disobedience and things that could be called civil disobedience. It's a basic attack on free assembly and free speech. And sure, while we don't have the freedom to break the law, we certainly have the choice to. It would be interesting to see if other cities make the same risk assessments and how we will see this so-called threat used by police to justify expanded police budgets. And finally, to Brazil, where the government has launched raids against illegal gold miners in the country's largest indigenous reserve, home of the Yanomami people. I have mentioned this before on the podcast, and I wanted to give you an update. Al Jazeera is reporting that state agents have destroyed a helicopter, a plane, a bulldozer, and support structures owned by illegal miners. They have also seized two weapons, three boats, and 5,000 liters of fuel. They have set up a blockade on the river to stop boats from entering the region related to mining. Illegal mining increased by 46% in 2021, and more than 20,000 miners are believed to be operating in the region. Though, when President Lula announced that they'd be cracking down, many of them fled to neighboring countries like French Guinea, Guyana, and Suriname. 
Of course, watching this through Canadian eyes, I just cannot imagine Canadian officials ever trying to say no to mining on Indigenous land in Canada, let alone seizing their assets. So watching this closely, impressed and really hoping for stability and good health and food security for the Yanomami. Those are your headlines for this morning. It is Thursday, February 9th. I'm Nora, and I hope you have a great day.